Welcome to the Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. Hello and welcome to the Mid 250 podcast. I'm Jean Roach. And I'm James Goodman. And we're speaking to you from Schroeder's head office here in London. And we are one half of Schroeder's UK mid-cap team. So this is the third podcast in our Mid 250 series, mm. How Time Flies. Uh-huh. <laughs> we had the Multibagger podcast in March, Cranswick in May. And after a summer break, we're really looking forward to our discussion with today's guest. Yeah. So the background to this one is that James and I noticed that a certain UK mid-cap company in which we are shareholders always generates really good conversation, really entertaining conversation in our client meetings. And an entertaining uh, return in the last five Mm -hmm. years with the shares returning over 25% per annum. So that is what brings us here today. We have managed to persuade the CEO of Pets at Home, Lisa McGowan, Welcome, Lisa. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Um, we've managed to persuade you to come and sit on the podcast sofa with us. Actually, three sofas. Um, so, Lisa, let's start with a nice, easy one. I hope it's easy. It might be awkward, actually, if, uh, if it's the wrong <laughs> answer. Uh, but full and fair disclosure, do you have a pet? Yes, I do, actually. When I when I joined Pets, I joined with my, um, my Labrador Fred, who's about nine now and who is the calmest, sweetest, kindest, mm-hmm. um, almost like an emotional support dog. He's lovely. Um, and actually all the puppies that I meet at Pets made me want a puppy. So we actually had, um, Fred uh, was a stud dog and we took one of the litter, Barney, uh, who has not inherited any of his dad's characteristics, <laughs> is an absolute tyke, but incredibly cute. And he's nine months old now. So yeah, two Labradors. Oh, very good. Very good. And so uh, quite taking up quite a lot of room in your house, I would have thought then. Yes, taking quite a lot of room. And actually, Barney has destroyed quite a lot of rooms in my house, but we love him anyway. <laughs> so I was going to ask you, do you have a favourite? But I suppose they're, they're kind of different, very different characters. So. They are. And I have mm. to say, to be honest, like Fred's a bit more of my husband's dog and Barney's really mine. <laughs> like, I just like his cheekiness. <laughs> That's great. And and so you've a relatively recent joiner to Pets Mm. at Home. Um, You haven't spent all your career there by any means. Could you tell us a little bit about your career and where you've worked prior to that? Yeah, no problem at all. So I started my um, career at McKinsey, uh, which I managed uh, strategy consultancy, which I absolutely loved. It was great to, as a young kind of first first job, getting out into loads of different businesses, seeing how they worked and having the privilege actually of working on some pretty big strategic problems with some sort of senior people. Um, so I loved my time there. And then I went and did my MBA at HBS, which was fabulous. I think the thing I most liked about that is you would do your cases the night before, you'd do all your prep, you'd kind of be like, I've got the answer. And then you'd walk into a room full of 90 people from all different backgrounds, all different countries. Um, and within about three minutes, you'd be like, oh, there's a whole load of different perspectives. And now I'm not, you know, now I don't now I don't know the answer anymore. So I think that was really quite formative, actually, in terms of my own interest in diversity and inclusion and different perspectives and bringing together different teams because you do get to a better answer. Um, and so then after um, HBS, I went to, um, to Sky. I had a very long stint at Sky, which I really loved. 12 years there, saw that 
company go on the journey from, you know, satellite, TV, analog through to digital telco media beer myth. And that journey, the sort of technology enablement, the consumer centricity has been something that's, you know, informed all all of my career um, and actually something that I've brought to pets. So when the opportunity came up in pets, I just thought it was such a great fit with, you know, everything I'd done, everything that was already in pets, the growth opportunity in the market. Um, So I said yes very quickly. Yeah, and I think we'd like to kind of revisit that a little mm. bit later on, um, you know, and, and your experiences before and how you brought that, how you've brought that into pets and probably have more um, plans for that as well. Yeah. Um, but uh, James and I were quite interested um, to know if there were particular mentors over your time, you know, that you'd call out or people who've had a very big influence on your career or particular events, you know, that yeah. can be quite interesting, sort of formative occasions, things like that. Yeah, quite, mm. quite, quite a few actually. Mm. I suppose the biggest, um, the biggest mentor I had was Jeremy Darrick, who was CEO of mm-hmm. Sky for all of that period. And just seeing the way that he had huge ambitions for that business, made them happen, but also was just a really caring leader that set such a brilliant culture. The tagline, if you watch Sky's adverts, it always says, believe in better at the bottom. And, you know, he very much lived that and and personified that, you know, very ambitious, always thought that we could do better, that the status quo was there to be tested and and exceeded. Um, But equally, you know, just a a fantastic leader of people. Um, And you could sit and have a chat with him. So that kind of that, um, that balance of you know, setting a challenge for the organisation, but also having great support is something that that I've tried to do um, as a CEO. So yeah, definitely a mentor. In terms of sort of formative experiences, I think if you're if you're a girl growing up and you you know like leading, you know you're bossy and aggressive. Whereas mm-hmm. if you're a boy, you're kind of bold and assertive. Um, so I think that's really stuck with me as well. Um, and I've made it a real point in my career to bring women up, to bring women on, but not just women, actually. I think it's given me appreciation of, you know, everyone's fighting their own battles and has their own things that they're, they're tackling. So again, this sort of, this theme of inclusion and diversity is really, really important to me. Um, a couple of others, I suppose. When I was at McKinsey, there was something which was really formative because I was quite young then. It was called the obligation to dissent. And it was this theory that whoever was the most junior person in the room was closest to the detail and probably knew more about the problem and the answer than anyone else. And so you, you had this real culture of, you know, if even if you were the most, and in fact, especially if you were the most junior person in the room, if you didn't agree with the answer that was kind of, or whatever was happening, it was actually incumbent upon you on behalf of the client to sort of raise your hand and say, I don't agree and here's why. And the senior leaders in that organisation were very open to that. So again, this, this kind of theme of inviting challenge, making sure you're bringing everybody in, you know, and getting the best information throughout the organisation, something that I really learned at McKinsey. Um, and I guess the last formative experience, I spent some time at Telewest, actually, I hadn't mentioned that earlier, mm. but I did a couple of years there. Um, and this was like in the year 2001, I think, like a long time ago, and I was working in interactive TV. And I was I was the product manager. 
and this product was 10, uh, sorry, six months late and no one could figure out why it was late. And there was all these Gantt charts and processes and everyone kind of going, it's late, it's late. And I eventually went and just sat down next to the bloke that was coding it. I said, what, what's so hard? And he said, oh, it's these fly out menus you want. I've done the whole, I've, I've done the rest of it months ago. I've just spent the last six months trying to code these fly out menus. I'm like, what fly out menus? Who wanted, and is someone who'd written in a list of requirements, like, you know, six months earlier would like, to, and no one had ever kind of put the two and two together. So I think a lot of my career has been about digital and technology. And mm. one thing I learned from that is you've got to have the business and the technology working really tightly together. You can't just write a set of requirements, throw them over the fence and hope it comes out the other side. And this was well before Agile. Um, but mm -hmm. I think almost I started doing Agile and making sure that my technology teams and my business teams were really talking to each other like from that experience. And actually, as I've gone through my career working with technology and business, being at the interface of those, that's that that's that's something I always do. And it definitely bears dividends. And that obligation to dissent mm. sounds really interesting. How, how does that play out at Pets? Is that speaking to people on the shop floor that are interacting with customers? Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. And and our vets, um, our colleagues on the shop floor, you know, I'll visit, um, I'll visit our, our distribution centre, go to grooming, just make sure you're out and about and just talking to people, spending time with them. And actually very early on when I was um, first, first joined, I spent a couple of weeks, I didn't go anywhere near head office. I spent my first two weeks grooming dogs, driving a lollop. I've got a lollop license now for the DC. <laughs> uh, you know, prepping cats for surgery. Because when you're working alongside somebody, you know, and it for a few hours, not turning up as sort of a state visit from mm -hmm. head office, mm -hmm. you hear very different things and you, and you mm -hmm. really get the truth. Mm -hmm. um, but also just in general meetings, you know, what, what going around the room and just checking that everybody's on board, reading body language. You can see sometimes when people are a bit uncomfortable but don't feel they can speak up and inviting them in it's um it's quite important I talk and I've talked openly to my top you know 130 about this idea of the obligation to dissent and how important it is because the people that are closest to the customer closest to the pet are the ones that are going to know and you need to make sure you're getting that information on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts you're listening to the investor download so let's rewind a little. Mm. For anyone who doesn't know what Pets at Home does and what Pets at Home is, could you give us a brief overview? Sure. So we are the UK's largest pet care business, um, by far the largest, with a really uh, strong market leading position. Uh, we have 457 pet care centres um, and also 400 and almost 450 vets, so mostly co-located, but not entirely. So 600 points of presence. And we have a very unique joint venture veterinary model, which I'm sure we'll, we'll unpack later, all, um, all driven by the purpose of creating a better world for pets and the people that love them. Uh, 16,000 colleagues who turn up to work every day, passionately living that purpose. It's a fabulous business. Oh, I think that kind of, you can sort of see that in the ad. So James and I were sort of warming up today. We we got out the, the meatloaf inspired ad and we had a bit of a giggle at that. <laughs> yeah. um, worth um, watching for anyone who's uh, listening to this podcast, have a little a Google of that. Um, but, you know, so is that what makes Pets at Home such a special company? Is it because pets are an extension of people's families? Is it the whole sort of humanisation of the whole thing? And I think the ad captures that yeah. so well. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the ad kind of, the genesis of that was literally looking at all the the crazy 
things that people do because they love their pets so much, you know, mm-hmm. make them birthday cakes and kind of stand in the, a hurricane to pick up poo and all of the, you know, and it's that, um, it's that bond, that pet owner bond, this idea that, you know, you'll do anything for your pet. And so will pets at home, you know, will go the extra mile. So that insight into that, that pet and that pet owner bond, really special. Um, and I do think it's become more so um, in recent years. It's been building and building those humanization, the premiumization, the fur babies. Um, you know, two generations ago, a lot of dogs slept outside. Now they mostly sleep on people's beds. Like mm. it's definitely, definitely a change. So yeah, that it was just, and it was, it just resonated so much with people when they see that advert because mm. you see yourself in it and the kind of crazy things you do for for the love of your pet. And what is the stat on that, the number of people who allow their dog to sleep Let's say on their bed. Do yeah. you know it's most? Is it? <laughs> I don't. I don't let. I don't let my dog sleep on my bed because I wouldn't have any space. Like two hulking great Labradors. But um, yeah, most people I know let their dog sleep on their bed. It's sort of totally, totally normal now. Do you have a dog? You see, I have fish, and so oh. that would be impractical. That would just be um, awkward. But, yeah. Uh, but there were some yeah. crazy stats about the amount of people. We're actually doing some focus groups um, last week um, with some different sort of customer personas. And the, the question I asked them all is, you know, what, what are you doing for your pet for Christmas? <laughs> Every single one of them just lit up and started telling us about the Christmas stockings that they're going to buy from pets at home and the advent calendars. And one person was like, well, I wait till January because I love my pet, but they don't know when Christmas is. So we just do it on January the 5th when I can get everything in the sale. <laughs> but every, literally everybody celebrated their pet's birthday and celebrated Christmas for their pets. So just like a member of the family now. And, and so to play devil's advocate a little... We saw the pet population really increase rapidly during the pandemic. Are we at peak pet? Definitely not. So this industry, one of the really nice things about it is it's in structural growth, um, about 4% a year structural growth. And it's driven by three things. So the first is this premiumization trend. So buying, you know, your, your pet premium food, um, premium bedding, all of those kind of things. Then the humanization trend. And that actually spans not just retail, um, but also veterinary medicine. The, the things that we're now doing with that for our pets um, to make them live longer and healthier lives are things that we wouldn't have done 10 years ago. The science is, is advancing all the time and, and what people are, are doing to, to sort of keep their pets healthy. So so those are sort of two really big trends, premiumization, humanization, driving growth. And then we have this huge uplift in people um, uh, penetration of, of pet ownership during COVID. Um, but it's not a bubble in the sense that it has burst. It's those pets are now in the population for another 10 years, 15 years. And once you have a pet, you tend to then get another pet and another pet as, you know, as evidenced by me. But that's a very much a trend, a second a pet and a third pet. And underpinning that are lifestyle factors, right? So the COVID um, change of working lifestyles means that, you know, you don't have to worry anymore about getting a dog walker or a dog minder because many days a week, certainly between a, a couple of, often, you, you, one of you is going to be home at lunchtime to to let the dog out. So, or a neighbour might be because everyone's working from home. So that's changed. And then Gen Z, you know, unfortunately, ideas like getting married, having kids and having a house seem just further away, those sort of adult milestones now, especially during the cost of living crisis. So people are getting fur babies earlier. They traditionally would have got them after all these milestones, but they're getting them before. So there's quite a lot that's sort of driving the industry um, structurally forward um, that was definitely kicked up um, by the by COVID, but by, by no means a bubble. And maybe a little extra one on that. I think you gave a stat of 22,000 new 
puppies and kittens a week in your last um, statement, in your last trading statement. Yeah. I mean, I was just imagining the kind of cacophony of that, you know, of that whole thing. Yeah. But um, what kind of, who, who are you seeing now as the new, so who are they first time puppy and kitten owners usually, you know, and and is there anything you can tell us about these new owners now? Yeah, yeah. it's it's a real mix, actually. Mm. It's still puppies, it's still kittens. Mm. And I mean, you know, if you go in, if you go and work in a pets at home for a morning or an afternoon, you know, when a puppy comes in, there's just all that kind of joy and love and excitement. Uh, it's absolutely, it's such a nice thing. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's pretty, it, it's pretty similar in terms of, it hasn't changed massively in terms of who's buying them other than this emergence as I was saying, of this younger demographic, Gen Gen Z, mm. um, getting them much younger. But, you know, all, uh, pension age people um, continuing to, you know, ev- everybody loves, loves pets, really. Mm. Um, and that, as I said, when you've bought, when you, when you've, when you've been a pet owner, you tend to then be a sequential pet owner for a very long mm. time. So that's, you know, more than half the people in the UK have pets um, and that's continuing. Are there things that you or that you're constantly being asked that people constantly misunderstand about pets at home? Definitely, there's some misunderstandings out there. I think for our our customers understand very well what we do, and actually, one of the things that um, we said at the end of the advert we were talking about is um, more customers trust us with their pet care than anyone else, and actually, seven times more customers trust us for their pet care than any other provider. So we've got really high levels of of mm-hmm. trust and love, and that's very unusual uh, for a brand and for an offering. Um, so consumers know what it is we do. But having said that, a lot of consumers only use part of our offer and we haven't made it easy enough actually for them to use all of our offer. So they might um, buy their food from us, but not their accessories. They might do grooming, but not use the vets. And actually, we know that when customers have been able to navigate our full offer, one of the things we need to do is make that a lot easier. Um, They spend six times as much with us. So sort of consumers get who we are and love us, but I don't know that they necessarily get and consume the full breadth of our of our offer and one of our opportunities is driving what we call share of offer um share of wallet sorry or or consumer engagements it's a very big opportunity for the business in terms of um of the of investors and the kind of markets i think we are in that uh, neighborhood of uk mid-cap consumer exposed Mm -hmm. retailer uh, which is a lovely neighbourhood, but, you know, <laughs> not necessarily the most popular one in town at the moment. And I think there's sort of three misunderstandings that, or three things that people don't necessarily get. And we spent quite a lot of time at our strategy day this year unpacking those. The first is the, the resilience and structural growth of the sector, um, even through, you know, the pandemic or especially through the pandemic, but through the cost of living crisis, you know, the growth has been there um, over the last 50 years. The second is the strength and attractiveness of our vets business. Um, you know, that's over 500 million of consumer revenue, um, one of the top three vet businesses in the UK. Um, and because it's part of the Pets at Home group, I'm not sure it always gets the kind of exposure or the multiple that that it should mm-hmm. do um, historically. And then the third is, you know, the fact that once you've got a pet, you know, it's, it's quite habitual spend. The pet needs to eat every day. You know, it needs to be groomed every four to six weeks. Mm. So we can really well track the cohorts and the predictability of that spend. Um, And that's something, again, that's very different from a standard retailer that I think is underappreciated. And just to unpack unpack the vet model, we mentioned it earlier. Why why would a vet 
prefer to work with pets at home than set up their own practice. Yeah. So we have a really um a really different model um than 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 anyone else. And we've we've been running it now for 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 many years. Um but I think it's really come into its own. Uh so we provide uh some seed capital. The vet puts in a small amount of seed capital and we um help them find a, a, a loan um, and then set up the practice. They have complete clinical freedom and complete operational freedom. So it is their practice, they run it. And then we use our economies of scale, our economies of scope to provide all the support services that the vet might need, whether that be HR, finance, um, marketing, an increasingly digital platform data, these kind of services mm-hmm. that that are really quite valuable. And so they get their own practice, but actually they just have to worry about, to some extent, being a great vet and doing what they love. And then they get all of the benefit of being part of a, a branded group, a very trusted consumer branded group. Um, and, you know, it's 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 very lucrative. They um, 90% of our practices are profitable. It takes a while to get to profitability because you need to build up your, your client list. But 90% of our practices are now profitable. The maturity continues to grow. And last year, our vets took 36 million of dividends um collectively so you know you can create value for your family uh, and wealth you have your own clinical freedom you operate your practice how you want and all the stuff that you know you can't do cheaply yourself or that you don't want to do yourself we we provide it in economies of scale and scope so it's a it's a really great model and if you think about the alternatives being working for a corporate being an employed vet doing you know with KPIs and all the things that, that that comes with, no no real clinical freedom or operational freedom or starting up on your own with all of that, with none of that backing and support, you know, our model actually is the best of both. Do you think it makes the um, job of being a vet much less lonely if you're, you know, not putting words in your mouth necessarily, but I'm um, just imagining if I were to become a vet myself, unlikely at this stage. Yeah, <laughs> there's always, there's always hope. <laughs> um, yeah, I think so, because there's always that that collective of peers that you can talk to. And our um, our JVC, which is our, you know, they're elected from the from the vets mm-hmm. and they sort of, you know, represent our, our partners. Um, they spend quite a lot of time working on the key issues of the day and helping, um, you know, wh- when, when things come out of, you know, various... Um, bodies that mm-hmm. you know we're able to help interpret that they're able to help interpret that and provide that support you know m- mental health is is mm-hmm. an issue for all for all for all colleagues um but i think you know vets deal with some quite hairy stuff right and mm-hmm. and it's it's life or death and knowing that that's there for you as well those support services are quite mm-hmm. important and then you know you you can talk to vets that they're not in competition you know the, the vet catchments are actually quite small generally a five minute drive from your vet um so very very rarely you're in competition and actually you've got this national um group of you know 500 JVP 600 J, joint venture partners who you can talk to about pricing or you know you know, or, 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 or clinical advances, like anything from business to clinical, they're there for you. So yeah, we definitely find that that's a really critical resource. Get in touch with us by email at shorterspodcasts at shorters.com or visit our website, shorters.com forward slash the investor download.
rolling back a bit to you know the uh, what you did before at Sky and what you're doing now, what are the unique challenges of the pets at home CEO role? You know, obviously you, you get to come meet us, so that's yeah. you know, something you wouldn't have got to do at Sky. Yeah, but um, well, that's the main benefit, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> um, but you know what? When you kind of compare what you were doing there mm-hmm. and what you're doing now, you know what are the you know maybe the much better things and then the the much bigger challenges say, yeah. um, that you see the differences between the two. Being a CEO is just different. Mm -hmm. It's different than any other role. And I think, um, you know, when you're an MD of a business, I was running a really big P&L at Sky, I was running a 10 billion P&L. And I kind of thought that being a CEO would be quantitatively different, like 30% harder, something like that. Mm. But actually it's qualitatively different. It's Mm. a different job entirely. Um, And a lot of people describe it as lonely. I don't find it lonely because I've got loads of support around me. My board are fantastic. My team are fantastic. You know, I've, all, I've got a load of other CEOs. I know I can always pick up the phone, but it's it's not lonely, but it is weighty. There's a responsibility there. You've got a responsibility to your shareholders for their equity. You've got responsibility to 16,000 employees. Um, you've got a responsibility to run the business really well and make the right decisions. And, you know, that's just very different than being an MD. Um and I love it, actually, but it's very, very different. Um, it's what it's absolutely why I wanted to become a CEO. Uh, so no complaints, but I'm just sort of trying to explain how, mm-hmm. how it does feel different. Um, I think the, um, the the sort of differences between my last job as well, I mean, there's a lot of, of similarity, actually. I, I bring a lot from my last role. You know, Pets is a brilliant business, fabulous retailers, fabulous vets, really deep understanding um, of pet care. Um the vision for the business is to build the world's best pet care platform so that you can do anything you need to care for your pet, whether that be, you know, ordering a um, a food subscription, um, doing a post-surgical checkup remotely, um, going into store and picking up a little treat, booking a grooming appointment, all of this through one omni-channel integrated platform. So we just make it seamless and easy and use all of our data. And I guess the stuff that I bring from Sky in terms of consumer centricity, building technology-enabled businesses, understanding you know multiple businesses on a single platform and how that generates value, um, all of that's really super relevant when combined with you know the retail, the veterinary, the pet care experience of of that's already exists in the business. So you know hopefully it's a match made in heaven and we kind of you know it works really well and, and we we work better together. Um, so I think that's that's sort of what's so brilliant. About about being at Pets. You can bring all the experience and, and apply it to a different market, but one that's growing with so much opportunity and with such a lovely purpose. And then I think the really nice things about being the CEO are, you know, you can set the culture, you can set the strategy, you can be a role model, you can you can make a difference. And, you know, I think it's important to wear that responsibility, like, seriously, but mm-hmm. lightly. I think one of the interesting things for us when we see people step up from being an MD of a um, subsidiary to a CEO is that capital allocation role. Yeah. Suddenly you're in charge of the purse strings, how you decide. Well, me and my CFO. Oh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> He's holding He's pretty tight, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so how do you think about that more generally? What, what are pets at home going to spend money on in the yeah. next few years? Well, firstly, it's important that we do spend money because we are in a growing market um, and it's important that we spend to 
uh, take our share of that growing market. And also we are in a leadership position. So we have the ability to dig a deeper moat around our business by laying down capital um, and making that advantage position even more advantage. So we will spend about 400 million over the next five years and about... 40% of that will be on our, our physical estate, both growing it, refurbishing it, expanding our veterinary our veterinary practices in there. Uh, about 40% will be digital, so building this omni-channel platform. Um, and we're actually quite close to launching the first phase of that. Um, and then about 20% um, growing our vets business, which is you know a huge growth engine for the business. So if we do that, if the market grows around four, which structurally growth it has always done, we'll grow about seven on our revenues and about 10% um, compound profit growth. So, you know, good returns to shareholders, great experience for consumers, much better pet care for their pets. I think we always find when we have a, we have the luxury of having a CEO to ourselves to talk to for half an hour, um, we always want to find out um, what would a working week look like? And you can give us a little bit of insight into as well, you know, if it's, you know, you have a matcha tea every day or something like, you know, those kind of things are always interesting as well. Yeah. So rather than a day in the life, because a week in the, life. Week in the yeah. life, roughly. That is my favourite column. Yeah. Day in the life. I love it. Yeah. Like, yeah. But I hope I'm not as mad as some of those people. <laughs> uh, but maybe. Um, uh, so a working week looks busy mm-hmm. um, is the first thing to say. So because we're a, a national business, I do spend time trying to, you know, get out and about around the country. So on a Monday, I tend to have quite an operational focus. It's a retail business um, as well as a vet's business and a digital business. But you always want to kind of the trading, the numbers, the PL, the operations There's a fairly kind of good rhythm to that. Um, Tuesday, I would always tend to be in our, in our head office, our support office in Hanforth. Um, we're in a sort of Northwestern business at heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will spend a lot of time with people there looking at our strategic growth plans um, and making sure we're delivering our initiatives um and looking at those those and then Wednesday I'm almost always out and about in stores in practices we're actually um transitioning in fact we've transitioned to our new distribution center um so I spent a bit of time there over the last the last few months as well um it's it's been a, a big project bringing four into one um which has been exciting um so I spent some time in a high-vis jacket they mm-hmm. gave me a pink high-vis jacket with CEO written on the back and at first I was really flattered I was like oh what a lovely present and then I'm like no, they want to know where I am at all times. <laughs> There's a tracker in it yeah, as well. exactly, exactly. Um, and then on Thursdays, I tend to do things like this. So mm-hmm. be in London, talk to investors, external focused. And then Friday, I try and keep a bit freer for sort of longer term strategic thinking, mm. thinking about leadership development, the things that it's quite hard to carve out of the working week if you don't spend, if you don't sort of put some time to it. Mm-hmm. Um and within all of that, I try and exercise five times a week because you've got to kind of mm-hmm. try and stay healthy. Um, and then I've got three children, uh, one of whom's just gone to university, uh, mm. two of whom are at home. So I try and have supper with them most days, actually. Um, and then, yeah, I've got a terrible tea habit. I think I'm up to about eight cups a day, but don't tell my husband. I don't. We haven't even offered you a no, cup of tea no. here. It's just water on the table. Oh, disgraceful. No, so I'll have to drink some water. Then. Yeah. <laughs> and then at the weekends, I try and spend time with family, with friends. Um, I love cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, I love doing yoga. I love cycling. Um, and I love planning holidays, traveling and scuba diving in particular, my top favorite relaxation activities. So, yeah. 
fantastic answer. So I suppose a slightly tricky one to mm. finish. You mentioned that Pets at Home sometimes is misunderstood as this mid-cap consumer business prone to some of the uh, cyclicality in the economy. How do you stop the multiple of the shares becoming too low that a, a potential acquirer could come and bid for you at a, a low premium and we as investors would feel like we're forced to sell the company at a price that's not reflective of the value? Goodness me. Uh, no, I so look, it's something I think about. And um, actually going back to the beginning, so when I was at Sky for about three years, the time we were on there, we were underbid. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jeremy did a brilliant job of keeping the business running um, and, you know, dealing with that side of things just between him and, and, and the board. And I think, you know, that that's the right approach. And he always used to say, just run the business really well and the rest will take care mm-hmm. of itself. And I think as long as you set the right strategy, you execute really well against that and then you communicate to the market uh, what it is you're doing and why uh, and Mm. give them, you know, so they've got good visibility. Um, Then you should be valued fairly. You should maximise your value. Um, And that's really all you can do as a CEO. And I think it's it's what you must do. Mm. Mm. Well, I think it helps if you're in, you know, fantastically entertaining subsector as well, you know, as we sort of started out by saying. But, you know, I think James would agree as well. It looks like, you know, all of the things you described that you've been doing them um, and communicating very clearly what your plans are um, and really hit the ground running. So, um, you know, uh, we're looking forward to future successes. And, you know, eventually I probably will get a dog rather than just having fish because it's a bit, you know. Yeah, well, if you do, uh, at home, you're not trying to sell me a puppy, are you? <laughs> 10% off. Okay, okay. I'll, t- I'll take you up on it when we're ready. Brilliant. Thank, thank you so you much, no, Lisa. Thank you for really me. good really to chat great to you. Great to chat. Yeah. Thank you. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, please head to schroders.com forward slash insights. And we're endeavouring to record as many of these shows in the studio on video. If you want to watch them in their full unabridged version, uh, then go to Schroder's YouTube channel. If you want to get in touch with us, it's Schroder's podcast at schroders.com. And remember, you can listen, subscribe and review the Investor Download wherever you get your podcasts. New shows drop every Thursday at 5pm UK time. But above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up. Investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products or to adopt any investment strategy. 